It's Thursday, March 16th, and right now, banks got to move faster than they can run. We start here. First, it was Silicon Valley. Now a bank in Europe sends shares tumbling. There is nervousness in the stock market right now, and that can translate into nervousness for consumers, for households. Even healthy banks can't handle uncertainty like this. So what's about to be done? A decision to keep abortion pills on the shelves rests on one judge in Texas. He wasn't just talking about whether or not abortion was or wasn't legal or the actual drug of mifepristone. It was how are people getting their hands on it? Maria Villarreal was in the courtroom. We'll take you there. And if you identify as a man, can you go to a women's college? Gender diverse people are impacted by misogyny, the patriarchy, gender-based discrimination. Why liberal arts school leaders are debating the student body. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. You've heard of banks being too big to fail. And when the government intervened at a couple of banks this week, President Biden was careful to say these banks were not too big to fail. They did fail. They were forced to close their doors and have their accounts run by the government. They knowingly took a risk. And when the risk didn't pay off, investors lose their money. That's how capitalism works. But what this policy from the feds did seem to suggest was that even big bank accounts would not be allowed to fail. Your average account is insured for up to $250,000. Now the government was saying all these customers at these two banks with millions in savings would be made whole. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. With that, many customers at other banks breathed a small sigh of relief. Stock prices for many banks started to go back up earlier this week. Well, yesterday, this began looking like less of a one or two bank concern, not a small bank concern, not even a one country concern. One of Europe's largest banks now, Credit Suisse, and the stock price plunging to an all-time low today. As people began taking money out of Credit Suisse, one of their big backers said he would no longer provide cash to help them weather the storm, and shares at several big banks around the world went right back down. A wild day for the financial markets yesterday. So what does it hold for today? ABC's Elizabeth Schulze covers economic policy. Elizabeth, I, like when I look at the Credit Suisse thing and these stocks going down, like I don't know what to think. What are investors seeing, though? And perhaps what are other banks seeing that the average person might not? Okay, here's the reality, Brad. The banking system is built around trust. And right now, that trust is wavering. You know, when you go to the bank, when you go to deposit your money, or more likely when you get your paycheck deposited into your account at your bank electronically, you are trusting that bank that it will lend that money out responsibly, that when you go and you want to get your cash, that it's going to have your cash on hand to withdraw it. And right now, that confidence is eroding a little bit. At least investors are worried about that confidence eroding a little bit. And that can have a real domino effect. And, and some of the analysts I'm talking to say part of why there is this nervousness, this this trust issue is because the 2008 financial crisis is still very fresh for a lot of people. So right. when you hear that the government is taking over banks, like we saw with Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, or when you hear and you see a situation like Credit Suisse, which is what happened yesterday, that this investment bank appears to be having trouble raising cash, that its biggest investor says it's no longer going to put more money into the bank. There have been longstanding problems plaguing Credit Suisse. This is not the first time we've heard about operational issues from them. But when you start to hear that a regulator, even as far away as Switzerland, is going to take the step if it needs to give a lifeline to that bank, it's hard not to have 
the muscle memory kick in and think back to a situation like Lehman Brothers. Now, most analysts say this is not a situation like Lehman Brothers, but a lot of investors, when they see smoke, they assume there's fire. They kind of go to that worst case scenario. There is nervousness in the stock market right now. And that can translate into nervousness for consumers, for households. And that's really one of the reasons why we're seeing the federal government go to great lengths, Brad, to tell Americans that their money is safe, that there is no reason to panic more. Well, it you mentioned 2008. Is regulation a thing to pay attention to here? Because like back in like the wake of 2008, we had all these new regulations that said, you know, banks have to have money. A lot of them only apply now to big banks, like the, the smaller regional banks managed to sidestep some of them. Is that what caused this? Like how, how big of a concern is that? Right. So, you know, the short answer is that Regional banks, some of these smaller mid-sized banks are held to a different standard right now than the big ones. And to kind of understand where this came from, it is helpful to go back to the wake of the financial crisis to 2010. That is when this massive piece of bank regulation called Dodd-Frank passed. Uh, smaller banks in this country will be the beneficiaries of an important piece of this legislation thanks to his leadership. Thank the you. riskier the bank's activity the higher their FDI assessment will be in general. And this was a direct response to what we saw in the financial crisis. Basically rewrote, it tightened so many rules of the banking system. Like it created this whole new government agency to protect consumers. It required banks to go through these stress tests, to go through these scenarios to test if they'd be able to respond in times of uncertainty. When you fast forward a couple years to 2018, a lot of these smaller and mid-sized banks were complaining and lobbying that they were having a hard time complying with these stricter rules that were on Dodd-Frank. The direct cost, as well as management's time and attention to meet these rules, create a disproportionate burden on regional banks. They said that it was too burdensome for them. And lawmakers and, you know, a lot of analysts understand that having these small and mid-sized banks around is critical for the economy. It it promotes more competition. You don't want to just have all of the money in the financial system in five big banks that that's it. So they took the steps to roll back some of these requirements in 2018 for some of these smaller and mid-sized banks. And that was a law that was passed with bipartisan support in Congress. That How much that led to the issues we are seeing with some of these regional banks today would it help if they had to hold on to more capital or had to go through some of these stress tests? Probably. And we might see an effort to kind of bring those mm. regulations back. But that isn't the whole story. There's a lot more going on here with the overall environment of the economy and the reality of the banking sector today and how much technology has changed the banking sector today, too. Well, yeah, let's talk about that, because there are, like you said, there are other differences between 2008 and 2023. There's also kind of a digital difference there as well. No question. A bank run today looks a lot different than it did 10, 15 years ago. And we saw that happen with Silicon Valley Bank. And I start getting a ton of emails, slacks, texts from other founders uh, alerting me to, to some of the, the early news on Thursday around what was happening with Silicon Valley Bank. They went on their accounts. They were trying to withdraw funds. You know, you can pretty much do all of your banking within seconds on your phone in a way. Right, you're, not you're not driving over. Exactly. You know, we did see some lines, but a lot of this was just happening totally digitally. And so there is this question about even if these banks had been under closer watch, closer supervision, could that have stopped people from having this kind of panic set in so fast in the digital age? And maybe that's something lawmakers need to think about when they're making rules for the future. Right now, the more immediate question for the stock market is, are these concerns that we're seeing about banks 
Are they going to spread to others, obviously? But also, is this going to affect how consumers think about the economy? Are you going to be just a little bit more cautious because you don't know how this is going to play out? And that could have bigger ripple effects as we're looking at this incredibly uncertain moment in the banking system and the broader economy too, Brad. Right. When people decide to stop spending money just because like they don't feel good about money right now, that in itself can have a ton of consequences. Uh, Elizabeth Schulze, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Next time on Start Here, it's just a normal court hearing, except the folks in kangaroo suits and that thing about banning abortion pills. We're back in a bit. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. We heard yesterday about how high the stakes were for a hearing at a federal court in Texas where one judge would rule on a case challenging Americans' right to abortion pills. He wasn't expected to rule on the case itself right then, but remember, in cases about whether something should even be on the market, a judge often does have the power to issue an injunction to ban something preliminarily while the case gets sorted out. But while that's usually done to uphold the status quo, here you have the possibility that an injunction could affect millions and millions of women across the country. ABC's Maria Villarreal was there in the courtroom in Amarillo, Texas. Maria, what was it like there? You know, it's really interesting because when I flew into town and I picked up a rental car, the guy at the counter said, what are you doing here? What's so important? What's going on? And so it was really interesting to me to to see and to hear that locals here didn't have a whole lot of idea that this was happening in their own backyard, right? But then you get to the courthouse. It is, I don't know, about five in the morning because we're getting ready for all the different shows. And there are people already waiting in line. I mean, they have actually been there since before five in the morning just to try and get a space in the courtroom. This drug is not legal to give. It's going to impact a lot of women negatively. A lot of the um, public seats that were taken up in the courtroom were from um, conservative church members here supporting the belief 
uh, that they had, which was pro-life. It feels very discouraging. It feels like we have gone back in history. There was a group of protesters that set up a kind of kangaroo court situation with someone who was in a costume of a kangaroo. And the, and the thought behind that was it will hurt our democracy no matter which way we're going. The fact that we're even having this kind of a hearing is just ludicrous. And so um, to hear both sides and to see both sides, but also to see them kind of commingling with each other and listening was also, you know, a great experience to have. Well, and as for the arguments, Maria, because obviously, like, activists on either side are going to be arguing about whether abortion pills should be legal or illegal or whether they're necessary or not. But here, the judge was trying to decide, should they be taken off the marketplace for now? What were the arguments? You know, the plaintiffs are saying that this goes way back to the year 2000 when the drug was first fast-tracked to get approval. I mean, they have the argument that it shouldn't have even gone through that process, that they, you know, overstepped their bounds, the FDA, by approving this drug way back in 2000, you know, 22 plus years ago. We actually heard the plaintiff's attorneys talk a lot about the possibility of women having complications um, with taking mifepristone if they needed it for an abortion. These women, they're told it's safer than Tylenol or penicillin, so when they have a complication, they're surprised. Many times they do not go back to the abortion provider. Mifepristone is a drug that has been um, being administered and approved by the FDA for over 20 years. I didn't hear a whole lot of backing when it came to here are, you know, three studies that show that this drug doesn't work. In fact, on the opposite end of this, I think they basically said um, they gave way to what the FDA has presented before, that this is a drug that it has very great good success rates. I mean, 96 percent of people that take it, you know, are able to get the abortion that they are needed. I think that you should be worried that um, any uh, politically motivated um, group could bring a case against a drug that has been approved by the FDA for 20 years. The defense says on the other side of it that they went through all the right procedures and they definitely feel that this is a safe and effective way to have an abortion if you need it and when you consult with your medical doctors. So medication abortion is the safest and most accessible option now for millions of women across the country. What was interesting to me in the courtroom was to hear the judge ask very specific questions about two things. One was the mail-in aspect of this. Um, He wasn't just talking about whether or not abortion was or wasn't legal or the actual drug of mifepristone. It was how are people getting their hands on it? And so the thought that you are prescribing anything and there will be no follow-up, that you could just Amazon this and order it into your home. And what is the, the law and the precedent for that? Can people get this in the mail? Because that's what's really starting to happen now is, you know, you get a prescription for this and then you're able to go through an online retailer and get this in the mail and it's delivered right to your home. The other question the judge posed was about the fast track aspect of the approval process. Back in 2000, he wanted to know how many drugs had been approved in a similar way beforehand. Most of the drugs that were mentioned were things that were to help patients that had HIV or cancer. I think what he was trying to get to was, does pregnancy get to that level of illness, that Mm. condition where you need to fast track this drug? So, I mean, is there a sense then of which way he would rule and, and what could happen next? So what's interesting about this is that both sides seem to already be showing their cards a bit that they are preparing for an appeal. So regardless of how this judge rules, I think there's a belief that one side or the other is going to appeal, and this is going to the Fifth Circuit. Some some legal experts are already predicting that it could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
we really saw a preparation on the defendant's part here. I mean, the uh, attorneys for the Department of Justice, also representing in coalition with the FDA, basically not only asked the judge that if he were to side for the plaintiffs here and say that he is going to grant a temporary injunction and the medication comes off the market, basically making it unavailable to women out there, families that need it. They were asking for a stay pending an appeal. And he actually cited, bringing in some of the other reporting we've done recently, Brad, you and I, is he brought in the conversation that was had around the Remain in Mexico decision. He said, basically, we need to mimic what happened there. We want a stay. So in other words, it gives us time and gives the FDA time to figure out what they need to do to get prepared for this and what really what women need to do to prepare for the inevitable. Yeah, so the stay, like if the injunction is a temporary thing while the case gets sorted out, the stay would be to keep the injunction off while they figure out the injunction. Uh, Maria Villarreal, really wild scenes there in Amarillo, Texas. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brad. Appreciate it. Over the last several months, we have seen conservative efforts to restrict transgender people from some parts of public life. Let's protect young people uh, from that over-sexualization at a public event. From bathrooms they identify with, from public performances in certain states, even from some school curricula where LGBTQ history and social issues are seen as a threat. In Florida, we will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get in education, not in indoctrination. But at the same time, you've also got groups who are welcoming trans people more and more. I feel like the um, Republican Party is out to eradicate transgender individuals from the state and from existing altogether. To take away other person, other people's human rights, that's just un-American. What happens when those groups themselves are defined by gender? For instance, what happens when a women's college has to decide which people qualify to be their students? Well, recently in Massachusetts, students at Wellesley College had a vote. The students at this famously progressive women's liberal arts school decided that in addition to accepting transgender women, they should also be getting accepting transgender men as applicants, as in people who might have been assigned female at birth but now identify as male. That vote has created conflict with the administration. We're starting to see this on more campuses. I want to bring in ABC's Kiara Alfonseca, who's been reporting on this. Kiara, what is this plan that Wellesley students want to put in, and what is the thinking behind it? Yeah, so the ballot initiative from uh, the college government was intended to show Wellesley administrators what the students want, which is essentially to revise the college's admission policy and the use of gendered language in college communications. And so the argument is essentially that some students transition while at the college and identify as trans men. Some identify as non-binary and go by they, them pronouns. Some go by any pronouns. Mm. And so at this college, you're interacting with a really gender diverse student body and they want the college's language to reflect that. Well, and like the student vote, just because it was voted on doesn't necessarily mean the school has to implement it. Right. So you had a response from the administration kind of as this began brewing, what has the response been? Yeah. So the president of the college, um, Paula Johnson, essentially came out and said there's no plans to revisit the admissions policy. Um, However, the college is going through other structural changes that kind of impact the LGBTQ community on campus. So um, they intend to offer gender and sexual orientation affirming therapy, expand all gender bathrooms on campus, um, among others. And so when the president of the college came out and said this, Students 
immediately reacted. Um, the Wellesley College News Editorial Board responded, saying that they continue to support trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming uh, students and faculty. Um, and students also reacted, hosting a sit-in protest. Um, so there was an immediate reaction from the student body. Well, I, I guess I wonder, Kiara, what the conversations have been like, because it, it made me go, huh, like, as a student body, I get that might want to be super progressive, super accepting. And yet, when you've got a place that was founded as like, this is a place for women for whom classes were not offered at the time for, by men's schools, by nature, that is sort of an exclusionary thing, right? Like, th this is for a particular group of people. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, what does that distinction mean to these students? Yeah, I think this prompts a really interesting conversation about gender. Um, another women's college that we reach out to, Mount Holyoke College, um, has told us that they have long welcomed gender diverse people, including trans men and non-binary people. They say that it's part of their mission to provide education for people who have been marginalized based on gender, gender expression, and gender identity. And that's why it was so important to include trans men and non-binary people. And so the conversations around this are, you know, gender diverse people are impacted by misogyny, the patriarchy, gender-based discrimination, um, which really does affect us all, um, but especially women and gender diverse people. And so that's why a lot of students feel that this should be part of, of their own campus. That's interesting, Kiara, because then it, it raises the question almost of what is a women's college for? Is it because there is a a specific outlook and a specific advantage that comes from having women around you, that, that this is a place for women and there's a specific point of view there? Or is it about just not being a man, not being a cisgender man is kind of the, the, the outlook here. And this is what helps us, you know, create a diversity of thoughts and opinions. And this is what makes it a safe space. Does it raise questions about like what is the true purpose of a women's college in 2023? Right. And I think I think that's part of the, the question and the dialogue that's going on. And not even just at this specific campus, but all all over the country when we talk about gender, when we talk about, uh, you know, reproductive rights, even that and how do trans men fit into that. Mm. So I think this idea of gender and how that intersects with a lot of the other conversations we're seeing across the country, um, it's it's part of this larger conversation. Yeah. And we actually got a comment back from the president of Wellesley. She issued a statement to ABC News that, quote, although there is no plan to revisit our mission as a women's college or our admissions policy, we will continue to engage all students in the important work of building an inclusive academic community where everyone feels that they belong. Kiara Alfonseca, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, how can we make server farms more eco-friendly? Well, it might be time to freestyle. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing. Tech is so hot right now, literally. Whoa, it is like 500 degrees in here. Even the guys from the HBO show Silicon Valley understood that the main challenge for some server farms is keeping the heat in check. Hey, why don't I just open up the garage door, let some fresh air in here? Yeah, sure. If you want the cooling system to shut down and everything in here to turn to magma. But what if there was another place to put all that heat? Well, right now in the UK, some swimming pools are being heated by data centers. 
In recent years, there have been numerous attempts to figure out how to make data centers more efficient. After all, for as much energy as they consume just to do the computing, to maintain them, you have to spend extra energy cooling them down. These are computers that are just designed to do one thing. They're designed to run as fast as possible 24 hours a day. These air conditioning systems create all sorts of problems. For one, you have to space out all the servers so air can circulate between them. You take up more real estate. Two, the more air rushing by these delicate parts all day, the more exposed they are to rust and other physics problems. Which is why some companies have started submerging their servers in liquid baths. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Liquid, electricity, hello? But remember, not all liquids conduct electricity. It actually absorbs heat more quickly than air, meaning if you surround your data server with, say, oil, you can whisk that now hot oil away to another place. Which brings us to pools. With energy costs spiking, more and more British pools have been forced to shut down. The BBC recently profiled a company called Deep Green that's been making deals with these local pools. You house our servers, we'll install a so-called digital boiler about the size of a washing machine that moves that hot oil through your heating system. This isn't the only venture of its kind, either. Denmark and Sweden are using servers to warm thousands of homes. Hopefully, we'll all figure out how to keep ourselves warm while keeping the planet a little cooler. Apparently, a couple of years ago, Microsoft dumped some big batch of servers into the bottom of the ocean to see if this like server pod could be as functional as a processing warehouse on land. It actually performed better. Just try not to heat up the whales, please. They've got enough problems. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.